What does it mean to inwardly digest God's Word? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery tells his story of finding confessional Lutheranism to be the most scripturally faithful theology. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. Do we really live in a country where only the left gets to do political satire? If anyone in the right half does this stuff, it can't possibly be funny because they have to be doing it for all the wrong reasons. When you have people who couldn't even begin to articulate for you what it means to believe in the triune God, but can tell you how Donald Trump is God's anointed servant, then you look at that and you go, yeah, that just sounds like you have an entirely false God. Many evangelical interpreters will take that Romans 7 text and say that that was Paul before his conversion. Now, this is an amazing thing to think about, that Paul before his conversion was spirit wrestling with flesh. (laughs) We would say, no, no, before conversion, you have none of the spirit. You have only flesh. So with all of the things that Jesus says about his return, there isn't anything that even really implies at all that there could be some multiple returnings of Jesus. When the Son of Man returns, he will return in his glory, and he will judge the living and the dead, and that is the end of all things. Blame the Lutherans. They brought us over here. Everybody blames the Lutherans. (laughs) You have heard some of these cliches. It's between me and the Lord. Jesus knows the heart. We should only go to the Bible, or it's unloving to exclude people from communion. Where do they come from, and how do we respond to them? What kind of damage do these cliches of evangelicalism do to a Christian's faith? Welcome back to Issues Etc., coming to you from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Joining us to respond to evangelical cliches, Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. He is pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas, he posts theology on the YouTube channel Wolf Miller One, and he is author of several books, including Has American Christianity Failed? Brian, welcome back. Thank you, Todd. Before we get into the particular evangelical cliches, this is not a problem only among evangelicals. Lutherans, uh, sad to say, many of our fellow Lutherans fall into the same trap of doing their theology by cliche. Now, the cliches in and of themselves may be true, like, Law and gospel, two kingdoms, even the solos of the Reformation can become a cliche. But what's the danger of doing theology by cliche? We always use shortcuts when we're talking because just to explain ourselves every time would take forever. But we, the danger is those shortcuts become shibboleths. That they, they become these cliches that don't have any meaning. They're just symbol. They're it's like. Uh, I suppose it's it's linguistic virtue signaling. Hey, we got law gospel. We got sacramental piety. We got the two kingdoms. We got the solas, etc. We're confessional. Even that's a, a bit of a cliche. Well, what do you what do you mean by that? And the the danger is we start throwing around these slogans one against another without thinking about what they mean, and we we start to absorb them. This I think is the real danger is that when when I absorb a cliche, I absorb a way of speaking from the people that I'm with and the people that I'm around, then I'm, again, I'm signaling that I, that I fit in, but I'm not really communicating anything. And so it's good for us to rub up against people who are 
from different theological traditions for this reason, because you get to hear language and words and phrases that you're not used to hearing, and they get to hear yours, and so you get to sit back and say, well, what, you know, what does that actually mean? What do you intend to communicate when you say that sentence or mention that phrase? What's going on behind that? And, and that's where the real conversation happens. And among us Lutherans, when we do our theology by, by cliché, is another danger that not only do they kind of become just meaningless, but we basically abandon the source of all these truths, Scripture, and just kind of apply these, for lack of a better word, paradigms instead of getting to the particular Scriptures that stand behind them. Yeah, because there is a historic conversation that grows out of the Scripture— there is a danger that we get caught and we don't ever get back to the source. So we quote Walther, who was quoting Luther, who was quoting Augustine, who was paraphrasing Psalm 16 or something like that. And we, and we never get back to Psalm 16, to what the Lord was teaching us there in the text. So there are these historical layers in the conversation, which is good. We can rejoice in the richness of all of this, but we do need to get back to the source. And the Holy Spirit has given us the words to use in the Scripture, and we ought to use those. We don't need to be constrained by them. In other words, we could use the word Bible, for example, or the word Trinity. We're not constraining our vocabulary to those words of Scripture. But it is a good exercise for us to always ask, if I did constrain myself to the Bible, how would I explain this idea, this word, this concept? So... I was just in a conversation last week, and we were talking a lot about culture and worldview. And I said, if we just had the biblical language, how would I define culture? Because that's a word not in the Bible. Or how would I define worldview? Also another word not in the Bible. They're helpful and good words. I wish I had a better one than worldview, but I don't. So we, so they're helpful words, but how does the Bible talk of these things? And that's a very good exercise to take us back to the foundations and to the scriptures themselves. The first cliche, and these have been submitted by a listener, it's between me and the Lord. This statement, in my experience as a listener, expresses the belief that a person's conscience on matters of faith cannot be questioned. If the Lord has put something on a person's heart because it supposedly came from the Lord, then it cannot be questioned. I think this statement also limits the growing in faith that Christians can do together because the focus is shifted back to the individual and their personal relationship with God. What are your thoughts there? Well, first, I really appreciate not only the identification of these cliches, but also Josh's exposition of them. And I think he's he's right on as he is identifying this phrase, it's between me and the Lord, what the problems of it is. Because it gathers up a number of issues that American evangelicalism has that pulls it away from the scriptures and from the doctrine that the Lord reveals. The first is an individualism, and I think this cuts off the individual in two different directions. It first diminishes the fellowship that we have as Christians. So it's true that the Lord deals with us all as individuals, but there's more than that. I think one of the helpful things to look at, I'll pick up and hopefully not use it as a cliche, but how Luther would teach us in the small catechism when he exposits the creed. And when he's talking about God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, he says, God has made me and all creatures. It's the me andness of the creed that I think we sometimes will miss as individuals. It's not just me. God has created me and everything else in creation. 
And then in the third article, where it's talking about the Holy Spirit and the Holy Christian Church and the communion of saints, he says, God has called me and all believers. He will raise me and all the dead. He will give to me and all believers eternal life. So I'm not by myself in the Holy Christian Church. There's the me and of all creation. There's the me and of all creatures. Now in the second article where we're talking about our Lord Jesus Christ and his work of redemption, it's really me there. The Lord is redeeming me. He's forgiving me. So sometimes the Lord will, will treat us individually, like he does in baptism. Sometimes he treats us corporately as part of the fellowship of his body, like he does in the Lord's Supper. This is my body given for y'all. It's not you individually, it's all of you. And so the Lord will not have the Christian be by himself. He'll have the Christian gathered up into the church so that we want to resist this, this cutting off of that horizontal fellowship. But then there's also a way that it cuts off the vertical fellowship. It's, between me and the Lord, it wants to do this kind of Protestant thing where we're rejecting sacerdotalism and that we have some sort of priest craft that stands between us and God. I don't need anyone between me and God. I don't need anyone to tell me that I'm forgiven. I don't need to, anyone to tell me what the Lord thinks. It's, it's me and the Lord. And in a way, that's profoundly true. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. That mediator role belongs exclusively to the Lord Jesus. But the Lord has ordered estates that we're in, in this world, in such a way that there's a head and a body. And in the church, he puts preachers there to deliver his gifts and to preach his word. So that it's not a coercive sort of thing to be under the authority of a pastor it's a gift from God to be there. And so just like every Christian needs a church, every Christian needs a pastor. That's how the Lord has arranged it. And this, it's between me and the Lord, is a way of kind of cutting off both of those directions, the, the, the vertical and the horizontal fellowship that the Lord wants to put us in. And it also grabs a hold of internalization. It becomes used as a tool of self-justification. There's a lot of other things that kind of get wrapped up into that cliché. What is that tendency, not only in evangelicalism, but in other uh, Christian confessions, to, you said focus on the individual, but also just, it's not just individual, which is, there's truth there, as you said, but it's individualistic, and it bleeds over into how the Bible's read, it's just me and my Bible, it's just me and Jesus. What's this tendency? Yeah, we could identify it as internalism. I was working on that, actually looking at this little cliche this morning and trying to think of a word for it. So the technical theological term that we use is enthusiasm. But I was wondering if we might, for our conversations, use internalism as a way of thinking about it. And that is to say that the, the realm of theological activity is not outside of me, but inside of me. And my internal life is, is very individualistic. It's, it's me. So where does God reveal himself to me? Well, we would say that the Lord reveals himself in the Word. The Word, the Word, the Word. When we hear the Word, the Lord is opening up his heart, his love, his mercy towards us. He's, he's giving us all of his gifts. But American Christianity, and also other forms of kind of hyper-spiritualistic religion, I think we could even say this of Roman Orthodoxy, but American Christianity, Protestant Christianity especially, wants to have this internal sense that God comes to me in my heart. That's where he teaches me, that's where he connects with me, and that's where he even maybe speaks to me, indicates that he's with me. It's all happening internally. 
And there's so many dangers to that. First of all, it's just not true. The Lord is always working through means. He always is working through the word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That is the truth and reality of God starts outside of us and comes into our heart through our ears. So it's wrong, but the error has consequences, disastrous consequences. One of them is that I become my own authority. If God has spoken to me theologically, then I have my truth. You might have your truth, but I have my truth, and you can't question that. How could I say that, no, no, you're wrong about that thing if the Lord has spoken directly to you, and now you've put yourself above the Scripture as judge? Or the other way that it could happen is if it's ethically, if you get some sort of internal direction from God, this is normally how it goes, is that the Lord has told me that he wants me to be happy, so this thing which I would normally think is wrong because the Bible forbids it, I'm going to do and say that it's right because it feels right to me. And the Lord has come directly. to It's between me and God, this thing. The Lord has come directly to me. So I'm going to now act how I want to act. And I'm now under no authority, theologically and ethically. I am my own judge. And this becomes militarized as a tool of extreme self-justification. So that anybody who would come and say, hey, that thing that you think is wrong or that thing that you're doing is wrong, not only is an enemy of me, but is now an enemy of God and his word and his truth. And so this internalization of spiritual reality is just the, the first step on a road that must end in me exalting myself as God. It is this fundamental idolatry. You will be as God. Because now everything is judged by this truth in your own heart, and you're held accountable to no one and to nothing else. And the danger here is so profound because you cut yourself off from repentance, from rebuke, from correction, from the Word of God, being the Word of God for you because you've replaced it with your own internal reality. And that's how this phrase, this cliche, it's between me and the Lord, is often used. Hey, why don't you just butt out, buddy? This is between me and the Lord. You got nothing to say here. I'm not listening to you. Your thoughts don't matter at all. I got God on my side, he's living in my heart and instructing me from there, and so nothing else matters. It seems like a very spiritual place to be, but it is a very dangerous place to be. So if not in the heart, the evangelical might query, where is God's activity? Well, it is in the heart, but the heart is supplemental. The heart is to serve the Word. So the Lord comes to us in the Word... And he puts that word, I mean, he puts it on the pages of the scripture. He puts it in the mouth of the preacher. He binds it up to water and baptism. He, he puts it there with his body and blood and the bread and the wine in the supper. So it's through the word that he's delivering that the spirit is working to create repentance, contrition, and faith, and the fruit of repentance, good works. So the word is where the Lord works, where the Lord has placed himself for us. The Lord is everywhere. He's in our hearts, especially we have that promise. He's, he lives in our hearts. He's in the air. He's in the stars. He's in the, he's, I mean, he is omnipresent, but he is for us where he's placed himself for us in the word. So that's where we look for his wisdom. This is how Isaiah says, the word, the word, the word. We're, we always have to run to the word. Paul says it like this, and in in, this is a theme of Romans. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation for those who believe. So that we look to the word, we mentioned the Romans 10 verse earlier, faith comes through hearing, hearing through the word. 
We look to the gospel, that preaching of the promise of God and the forgiveness of sins, one through the death of Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. And we and we know that the Lord works there. And the word now has to be have an authority over our hearts. We we're talking about this in Worldwide Bible class this morning. This beautiful text from John three twenty, where John says, If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And if our heart does not condemn us, then we have assurance before the Lord. So that our heart and the theological thoughts and feelings of our hearts have to be held under the authority of the word. If I feel, for example, like God has not forgiven me, then I confess that my feelings are wrong because the Bible says, I forgive you all your sins. Or if I feel like God has forsaken me, then I my, I confess that my feelings are sinful because the scripture says, I will not leave you or forsake you. Or if I feel like abandoning my children, then the scriptures come and rebuke me there also. Parents, care for your children. This, the commands of that the Lord lays on us on our vocations, all are constraining to the feelings of our hearts. So that our heart does not have authority over the word, but rather the word has authority over our hearts and over our consciences. God be praised. We're responding to evangelical cliches with Pastor Brian Wolf Miller. When we come back, Jesus knows the heart. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we finish Ruth with Ruth Waits with Naomi, Take My Right of Redemption, Boaz Redeems, Ruth Bears Obed, and then we head back into the New Testament with Intro to James. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. How did God address the Gentile nations through the prophet Isaiah? What is God's message to his own people regarding both judgment and consolation? And how does Isaiah's divine message apply to us today? Find out in the new Concordia Commentary on Isaiah, chapters 13 through 27. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, the Concordia Commentary on Isaiah 13 through 27. It's not about you, it's about Jesus for you. You're listening to Issues Etc. At Memoria Press, the Simply Classical curriculum is specifically designed for students with significant learning challenges. This complete program includes everything you need for a school, self contained classroom, tutoring, or homeschool to make a classical Christian education accessible for any child. To learn more, visit us at simplyclassical.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Simply Classical, a beautiful education for any child. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Our church loves and is grateful for those that serve our country. Operation Barnabas, part of Ministry to the Armed Forces, equips you to reach out to veterans in your community to bring Christ to those that served. Call Ministry to the Armed Forces at 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Thank you for your service. Thank you. God bless our military. 
Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We are responding to evangelical cliches with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. He is author of several books, including His American Christianity Failed. You can purchase this book on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. Brian, the second cliche that the listener submits is this. Jesus knows the heart. I find this statement is made especially when a Baptist tries to downplay or excuse issues with with doctrine by claiming that Scripture is confusing and so people can't be held to account for possible false beliefs, especially when their heart is in the right place and they have good intentions. Yeah, both of these cliches, it's between me and the Lord and Jesus knows my heart, really grab onto this idea of American evangelicalism that what it means to be a Christian is to have a personal relationship with Jesus. That's the creed of evangelicalism. And it's not in the Bible. Again, it's not, we can understand it rightly, but that language, personal relationship with Jesus, is not biblical language. It's a creedal statement. And what it does, how it's helpful for us, is it gives us an overarching picture of salvation. And we can contrast it then, because I think each confession, in one way or another, has a different overarching picture of salvation. In the Middle Ages, in the Catholic Church, the picture was a picture of a bank. And there was a chief banker, and there's a safety deposit box full of merit in heaven, and the Pope has the key, and he's distributing all this merit. It's really a banking picture. And it's, I mean, it's not accidental that the Pope that Luther was fighting against was from the Fugger family, the great banking family from Florence. And it's all kind of connected. So the Lutherans came along, the Wittenberg theologian said, no, the picture that the Bible gives us, the overarching picture, is one of a court. And we're there, guilty, in as the accused in the court. But here comes our advocate, Jesus, presenting the evidence of his death and resurrection. And the result is a declaration of righteousness, the doctrine of justification. And that's why the liturgy in the Lutheran tradition looks a lot like going to court. I mean, you walk in, and how do you plead? Guilty. Then the the declaration is spoken, forgiveness, and then the evidence is presented. And even, can you believe, the evidence that the Lord Jesus himself presents in heaven, his body and blood, is now given to you, so that when you go to the liturgy and go to the Lord's Supper, you're tampering with the evidence. I mean, you're eating and drinking the evidence of the righteousness that prevails before heaven. I mean, it's just a really beautiful picture. Well, evangelicalism has come along in the last couple of generations and said, no, that picture of a courtroom is wrong, cold, uh, not helpful for us. We need a new picture. We need the picture of a relationship. And so everything now is kind of grabbed onto this idea that we have a personal relationship with Jesus. It's about this one-on-one connection. It's about the intimacy that we have with him. And it's really the picture of, this might sound crude, I don't intend it to, but it's really like the prom. Jesus has asked you out, and now you have to say yes. And then your relationship with him grows through these two-way conversations. And the whole point of being spiritual is this deepening intimacy with the Lord. Again, it's not wrong in what it asserts. It's wrong in what it denies. It denies the holiness of God. It denies the whole purpose of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. It makes the problem not my sin, which goes all the way down to this fundamental rebellion that I've inherited from Adam and Eve. 
And now the problem is my distance from God, so that the gospel is about overcoming distance. Again, it is, but that's not all it is, because the distance is not just like God is very far away, and now he's very close. The, the problem is that God is very holy, and I am very not holy. So it misses the big picture of salvation. And in that way, this phrase, Jesus knows the heart, which is fundamentally and in every way true that Jesus knows the heart, it is for us frightening because I know that my heart is stained with sin and corrupt and full of all sorts of uncleanness. But oddly, for the evangelical, this phrase is used as a comfort. It's used to say, well, look, you're probably going to mess up in what you say and what you do, but Jesus knows your heart, which is fundamentally good, and so you'll be fine. And that gives us a clue into some of the problems with American evangelicalism, that it doesn't have a robust doctrine of sin, a robust doctrine of the atonement, a robust understanding of the cross, and even of our own human nature. And it makes everything now a matter of how do you feel about it? What are your intentions? What are you planning to do with that? And that's how this cliche comes to us, I think, normally when it's being used. The evangelical may respond, well, yes, everything you say about the human heart is true of an unbeliever, but God gave me a new heart. Well, true enough. But the problem is that I still have the flesh clinging to me. So I have these two realities, the spirit and the flesh, which are at war with one another. All of us are only ever half Christian. And now this is, I think the as Lutherans, we can get this wrong also. But we, we need to first recognize that we are in this battle, this flesh versus the spirit. So Paul talks about this in Romans 7, all the way through Galatians. This is the really what the Christian life is. The flesh wars against the spirit. The spirit wars against the flesh. The, the evangelical has such a hard time understanding that as a, as a Christian reality. In fact, many evangelical interpreters will take that Romans 7 text and say that that was Paul before his conversion. Now, this is an amazing thing to think about, that Paul, before his conversion, was spirit wrestling with flesh. <laughs> we would say, no, no, before conversion, you have none of the spirit. You have only flesh. It's after conversion that the spirit is added to you. And so you see in there also a number of errors, their free will doctrine, again, their misunderstanding about the depth of the fall, so forth and so on. So we have the spirit and flesh, and they're battling against each other so that my heart, as far as it's still bound up to my flesh, is is pulling me towards sin, pulling me towards corruption, pulling me towards the grave, pulling me towards all sorts of unclean things. Now, at the same time, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is dwelling in my spirit, is creating in me what our confessors called new desires, new emotions, new motions themselves, so that now I'm starting to want to do the right thing. I'm starting to want to love my neighbor. I'm starting to want to love and serve God. I'm starting to want to give my life for my neighbor and so forth. I'm starting to to not be afraid to die and to suffer quietly. All these, this new life and the fruits of the Spirit are all beginning at me at the same time. Now, how the Lutherans can get this wrong? Well, two ways to get this wrong. And I think these are both very, very important. So if we say, hey, we're flesh and spirit battling against each other, that's the Christian life. The first way to get it wrong is to equate the flesh with the body and the spirit with the soul. And that's the Gnostic error. 
And so that we see that our fleshly stuff is our physical stuff, and our spiritual part is our soul, our invisible part. That is not what the Bible means. We are born as flesh. Flesh means sinful nature. And, and so my body and soul are flesh. It's not like my outside's bad and my inside's good. No, my outside and my inside are all bad. And then when the Spirit comes, that Spirit is both external and internal. So that as a Christian, I don't want to say that the battle is my soul battling with the body. No, it's my spirit battling with my flesh. And my body can be spirit. When I hear the word of God, those are spiritual ears. When I eat the body and blood of Jesus, that's a spiritual mouth. We will be raised spiritual. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 says. So that we don't want to make the Gnostic mistake of saying the distinction between soul and body is the distinction between flesh and spirit. That's the first danger. The second danger is that for the Lutherans, we put the eye on the flesh side of the battle rather than on the spirit side of the battle. So that here I am, flesh and spirit, battling against one another, but what's the real me? And the answer is the real me is the spiritual new man. That's the me that's going to be alive in the resurrection. That's the me that's going to stand before the Lord in judgment. But I'm tempted to think that the me, the real me, is the flesh part, what I was born as, the old man. So that when I'm battling against its flesh versus spirit, it feels like it's me versus the spirit rather than me versus the flesh. Baptism means that the Lord is dragging us always to the spirit side of that battle so that we're fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil with the Lord Jesus on our side. And this is really kind of practical stuff. Where do I feel that pressure from? Do I feel the pressure from the flesh to do something wrong? Or do I feel the pressure from God and the word to do something right? And if I'm feeling the pressure from the word to do something right, then I need I say, hold on, hold on, hold on. I need to realize that I'm, I'm now standing on the wrong side of this battle line. I need to recognize that it's the flesh that's warring against me and the spirit. And, uh, and so we're, we're in this battle against flesh and spirit. Now, I think somehow we got to there from your question on the heart, but you got to wind me back to where we started. Is there a kind of a mirror image error among Lutherans, speaking of Lutheran cliches? And I think you were edging toward it a few minutes ago. That basically says, because our good works are not perfect, the Holy Spirit does, in fact, create new desires in us, but our good works are still stained with sin, the error I've noted is that Lutherans say, well, that we can't produce anything. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. So basically our good works are sins too. And to me, that sounds like a pretty powerless Holy Spirit. Well, yeah. The Lutheran confession is unique in recognizing the danger of good works. And, and so there is a responsibility, I think, that we have amongst all the other Christian confessions to be speaking of the danger of good works. I mean, the scriptures speak of it. Jesus speaks of it. Paul speaks of it all the time. The danger of good works is that we trust in them and that we are tempted to trust in our good works more than we're tempted to trust in anything else. I mean, for some reason, we don't think we're going to get into heaven because we're six foot tall or because we got a 1,200 on our SAT or whatever, but we do think that our works are going to get us in there. And so we do need to rail against this idea that we are saved apart from our works, and that's really, really important. So, so I, don't, I, I don't want to mute that, 
But the da but the danger that you're talking about, Todd, is what grows out of that, is that because I'm because I'm always talking about the danger of good works that we trust in them, that I start to think that good works are in and of themselves bad not to be pursued or none of my business i've got nothing to do with them and that is wrong unsustainable from the scriptures and also like every error dangerous i've heard lutheran pastors sadly assert that if you are struggling to do good you are engaging in legalism or self-righteousness self-justification that's so crazy this is and this, our start of our conversation about the danger of cliches. This is one of them, because you start to cliche out the Bible into law and gospel, and then you stop reading the scriptures, and that's the only way you could come to some sort of crazy conclusion like that, because the Bible all the time is talking about the fruit of repentance, which is love for God and suffering and on the way to death, and serving the neighbor and doing that sacrificially. And these are things that we should be striving for that we should be growing in luther himself will say look you, you should be better this year than you were last year you should be better <laughs> but this is just such a plain teaching of the scripture it's an amazing thing that we could miss it again it doesn't discount the the danger that we would trust in our works that of course that's always a danger i was talking with jeff before we started recording because i'm working on republishing this old precious bible promise book from from an old congregationalist and from 1720 and and here's all these promises of God. There's a danger in the promises of God. And that one of the dangers is that because we have God's promises, that we, we think that the, the preaching of the law doesn't apply to us. That's the old Jerusalem problem. God promised the Messiah would be in Jerusalem, so they ignored all the threats of Jerusalem's destruction and got destroyed because the Lord can raise up a, a shoot from the stump. He can cut down the tree and then still bring out a branch. This is the point is that because we have the promises of God, we can't become haughty and prideful, etc., etc. But then there's the other dangers that says that we have no promises at all. Because we're not sure if the promises apply from us, we can't take any comfort in them. This is always our temptation, is towards pride or despair. But the Word of God is always pressing us towards repentance and love. And if our theology, if we try to press people towards repentance to the exclusion of love, then something's wrong with the doctrine, just like trying to press people towards love with the exclusion of repentance. That's also going to be wrong. Evangelicalism really presses people towards love and away from faith and repentance. If we go the opposite way, we're always pressing people towards repentance to the exclusion of love, then we've just made a mirror image of the error. We're responding to evangelical cliches with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, author of several books, including his American Christianity Failed. When we come back, we should only go to the Bible. Here's an easy way for you to help us cast ChristNet on the Internet. Subscribe, rate, and review the Issues Etc. podcast with your podcast provider. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Help us reach more listeners in 2024. Subscribe, rate, and review Issues Etc. today. For nearly 140 years, the Lutheran Witness has taught the faith, defended it against error, and shown forth the great treasures of the Lutheran Church and biblical doctrine. 
We're continuing this legacy by publishing issues and articles that help you see the world from a Lutheran perspective and that teach biblical doctrine and show forth the treasures of God's Word. Visit our website to learn more and how to subscribe, witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Mount Olive Lutheran Church in Duluth, Minnesota, would like to invite you to join us Sunday mornings at 9.30. Whether you are visiting our beautiful city or live here, we have liturgical worship that shares Jesus with you. We're easy to find at 20th Avenue East and Superior Street, and also offer Bible classes at 825 Sunday mornings with Sunday School September through May. Check out our website for other Bible study times, visit, or call 218-724-2500. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com. LutherAcademy.com. A voice in the wilderness of American evangelicalism. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Christ the King Lutheran, Spencer, Iowa. Good Shepherd Lutheran, Collinsville, Illinois. Emmanuel Lutheran, Alexandria, Virginia. Lord of Life Lutheran, Plano, Texas. Our Savior Lutheran, Houston, Texas. Redeemer Lutheran, Huntington Beach, California. St. John Lutheran, Hutchinson, Minnesota. St. Paul Lutheran, International Falls, Minnesota. Trinity Lutheran, Louisville, Minnesota. And Zion Lutheran, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Support, Donate, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. We are responding to evangelical cliches with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. Here's another one, Brian. We should only go to the Bible. This statement asserts that any source other than the Bible is inadequate for understanding Scripture. Theology books are biased in a particular way of thinking, and we should only go to the Bible to see what the Lord wants to teach us. Furthermore, we should be able to just trust that the Holy Spirit will lead us to the right interpretation through the Word alone. What are your thoughts? Maybe two points. We mentioned the danger of individualism before, and that individualism that we cut ourselves off from the communion of saints— it's just me. I'm not part of the church. We cut ourselves off from the ministry. I don't have. I don't need a pastor. It's just me. There's a third way that I can cut myself off, and that's from history. This is also a temptation for evangelicals, and to say that it's like I'm the first one to come to this scripture. I'm like a rainforest bushwhacker. No one's ever walked this path before. I'm the first one to go over this, and and we lose this great gift that we have from the Lord that we are not the first to tread this path. We are not the first to believe. We are not the first to read the Bible. We are not the first to gather and worship. We are not the first to struggle through the difficulties of this life 
and the temptations and troubles that we have on our way to eternal life. We are not the first. The Lord has a cloud of witnesses that have gone before us, and that cloud of witnesses has left their testimony for us in the confession of the church, and it comes to us as a gift. There's a way that the Sola Scriptura combines with individualism to say, it's just me and the Bible, me and the Bible, and I cut myself off from all of the gifts that the Lord wants to give to us. Now, there's a truth in this. We should go to the Bible. We confess Sola Scriptura, that the Bible is our sole infallible rule for faith and life, but the Bible itself gives us the gift of confessing. Jesus says in Matthew 10, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my fathers in heaven. So that the church of Jesus is a confessing church. If the church does not have a confession that we're rejoicing in, and especially that confession when the devil would raise up heretics and errorists and people who would confess the lies about God, and the church now refutes those, rejects those lies, throws out those lies, and says, here's what's true. If the church did not do that, then the church wouldn't be an orthodox church. It wouldn't be the church that Jesus set up. So there's some inherent dangers in this cutting off from history that's behind this cliche. It's, we should only go to the Bible. So how do we prioritize Scripture and still listen to the testimony of those who have come before us, especially as Lutherans, adhere unwaveringly to the truths of Scripture that are brought forward in the Lutheran Confessions. Yeah. Well, I think the main thing for the evangelical, so the main difficulty for the evangelical is their view of history. And there's a tendency just to say that the truth has arrived now, and it just it dismisses the theological conversation that's happened before. Now, there could be a lot of reasons to motivate that. Church history is hard. The theological fights of the past are difficult. There's also a kind of American idea of, hey, we've arrived now. There's an evolutionary way of thinking that gives priority to the current generation as if we're getting brighter and brighter, smarter and smarter, so that we're the pinnacle of thinking. There's a plain old chronological snobbery that exists, especially in America. So any of those things could be behind it or motivating it, but it basically comes, it's the idea that everything in the past is to be dismissed. There's an iconoclasm that's in our culture now where we, we don't want to have heroes in the past. They were all miserable sinners, and so we, we don't have to listen to them. And this is politically and in our own cultural history as well as theological history. So, so there's a lot of things that are in the soup that make us sort of poo-poo the conversations of the past. But if we were to recognize that when Jesus established his church and said the gates of hell won't prevail against it, that he will maintain his church, that we can, we can look back and say, well, it must be that in the past 2,000 years since the Lord ascended into heaven, that he has been ruling and reigning in the church. And so we see the, the history of the church as a history of confessing the Lord's truth against various errors, and then we, we can start to see the benefit of it. So we can see the benefit of the early church confessing the two natures of Christ, the doctrine of the Trinity, the medieval church wrestling through the doctrine of original sin, the Reformation church wrestling through original sin, doctrine of the scripture, doctrine of justification, uh, the, the fight over scripture that happened two generations ago. These are all important conversations for us to pay attention to, 
and to see that the Lord is, is working through these things to bring the scripture to bear on certain errors. And in that way, I think we can keep the priorities right. The Book of Concord is the Wittenberg theologians bringing the scriptures to bear on current errors. The Apostles' Creed is the early church bringing scripture to bear on the current errors that they were facing. Nicene Creed, same thing. So that these confessions are bringing the scriptures precisely to the questions that are being faced in the church. And that keeps the priority straight. We're responding to evangelical cliches. Pastor Brian Wolf Miller is our guest. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. We'll take up the claim that it's unloving to exclude people from communion and that Jesus wouldn't do that next. If you appreciate Issues Etc., our 24-7 music and talk stations, and our daily verse-by-verse Bible study, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, please include a bequest in your will or trust for these worldwide media resources. A bequest allows you to receive an estate tax charitable deduction and reduces the tax burden on your family. Ensure your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren the opportunity to listen by including a bequest in your will or trust for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, and the word of the Lord endures forever. Where is God's mission? God's mission is everywhere. Yes, it's far away, but it's also very near. It's as near as your congregation in school, your neighborhood, your family and friends, even as near as your home. Wherever you are, God's mission is in that place. Through his mission, Christ is bringing forgiveness, life, and salvation to people everywhere, even here, right where you are. God's Mission Here. Learn more at lcms.org slash national mission. More topics, more guests, more Jesus. You're listening to Issues Etc. Christological. My friends, Jesus comes only for sinners. Historical. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by... Sacramental. Take and eat. This is the true body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, given unto death for your sins. To find a Christological, historical, and sacramental church near you, go to issuesetc.org and click Find a Church. Issues Etc. has been brought to you in part this week by Ad Crusum. Ad Crusum provides Christ-centered, high-quality products and services for church, school, and home. Learn more at adcrucem.com, A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com. We're responding to evangelical cliches with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. Here is the last cliche submitted from our listener. It's unloving to exclude people from communion. Jesus wouldn't do that. 
used to express discontent over the Lutheran practice of closed communion and refusal to participate in non-Lutheran communion. It has been argued to me that Lutherans appear superior and judgmental and that this practice causes division and is unloving. Yeah, it's so. this is a tough one because it is true that the practice of closed communion is an expression of our theology that American Christianity rejects by its individualism. We've again talked about these kind of three dimensional fractures that happen. I'm cut off from the church, I'm cut off from authority, I'm cut off from the past. And so the individual American Christian sees themselves as this independent operator. When we come together for the Lord's Supper, we're saying, hey, there's pastoral authority here, there's a fellowship of faith here, and it is in connection with the history of the church. And so the practice of communion fellowship is a, a literal expression of all of those continuities which American Christianity has cut off. And so you'll hear the excuses in all different ways for coming to communion against private confession. You'll hear the vertical way, hey, I don't need a pastor to stand between me and God. You'll hear the horizontal way, hey, it's just between me and Jesus, nobody else, what everyone else says doesn't matter. You hear the historic way, which is, I don't need to confess what other people have confessed, it's just me and the Bible. So you have all of these three fractures that are assaulted by the practice of closed communion. Closed communion, in a beautiful way, is an assault on this individualistic practice of Christianity. Now, I don't think it was intended to be that way. We got to close communion in a different way, but it just has that result, is that it is particularly offensive to individualistic Christianity. Just like infant baptism is particularly offensive to free will Christianity. So these things that we are given to practice by the Lord in the Holy Scriptures become offensive to people who have departed. And it becomes particularly offensive because that individualistic Christianity is kind of isolated in its self-righteousness, just like the free will Christianity is isolated in its choice. Like, I'm a Christian because I chose. I'm a Christian because of my feelings. I'm a Christian because... And when those things are assaulted, it really gets people riled up. Now, we practice close communion because the Lord intends for his church to have theological fellowship, and that fellowship is expressed in the unity of the altar, which is something that's been totally lost on us nowadays. That's why we practice it. It's an irony that the churches that don't practice close communion don't practice communion. I mean, they have a, some sort of symbolic, maybe the ELCA is an exception to this, although I don't actually think so anymore. I, who, they don't really have any theological conviction on anything left. So the churches that practice open communion believe that communion is just a memorial meal. You're getting bread and wine or bread and grape juice, and you're remembering the death of Jesus. They don't confess that the body and blood is truly there. They certainly don't confess that it gives the forgiveness of sins, which leads to an interesting question. I think if you had a, like an honest outsider who was trying to understand these things, they might come to us and say, hey, now wait, wait a minute. You say that in this meal, God, who became a man and died for our sins and rose from the dead, now gives us his body and blood with the promise that our sins are forgiven. And you're telling people that they can't have that? It seems like it would be on you who take these words most seriously to be the openest of all communions, <laughs> that we want everybody to come and take this. Well, that is 
the desire of the Lord's Church. That's our first desire, is that this precious gift we want everybody to have. And if that's not our desire, if that's not what our churches and our pastors are thinking, that we want everyone to have this gift that the Lord Jesus gives, then probably something's wrong. We're not to have a defensive attitude towards the supper. That The first is, yes, we want everybody to partake of this. But then, when we read in the scriptures, we read warnings about coming to the supper. And that's what gives us a little bit of pause to say that this great gift has the risk of also being dangerous. The evangelical can't see this because when Paul warns people that by taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way, they've sinned against the body of Jesus, they don't think the body is in the supper. So they can't see that as a danger for the supper. They miss it altogether. But we say, oh, there's a danger, there's a possibility that this isn't pure gift, that this also is, there's a threat to it. So there's a warning. So we want to be careful stewards of this gift. This is such a good and beautiful gift that we want it to have benefit and not be dangerous. So then we start saying, okay, what does that mean? What does it mean for this gift to be a beneficial gift and not a dangerous gift? And then we start to see a number of things. We start to see that it is for the repentant, for those who know their sins and trust in Christ, for those who discern the body and know that what is being given in the supper is the body and blood of Jesus, and also for those who are of one mind, that the altar is a place of unity where we can rejoice in being of one confession, where we take the words of the Lord that we should be of one mind seriously. And so those all show up as this practice of closed communion. It's not a matter of disdain or pride, but rather a matter of love for the Lord's word and a desire that this gift is received by all people in a beneficial way. But it's because of the shape of the evangelical mind, it is almost impossible for them to understand closed communion as a gift. Because of how they think of religion in such individualistic terms, it is a huge lift to help them to see that offense is not what's intended here, but that we're trying to be faithful to what the Lord has put in place. Brian, before we let you go, you and your wife, Carrie, are going to be leading a Lutheran singles cruise August 1st through the 5th. Tell us about that. I'm hoping we get enough people, Todd, that we can get you on there to do some karaoke with us. Uh, I don't know if that's a possibility. But August 1 to 5, we're doing a cruise out of Galveston for four days. It's for Lutheran singles ages 21 to 41. All the info is at the website, wolfmuller.co slash cruise, and you can find that there. Uh, get a roommate and, and jump on board. We'll have matins and vespers and daily Bible studies and then try to do a bunch of group stuff to meet Lutheran friends, and it's for singles, so who knows? Maybe there'll be some uh, connections made that might lead to the Lord's gift of marriage. So I think that's what we're what we're hoping for, and we're going to try it. So far, I think we it's just kind of gaining steam. So I think we got 25 signed up. I imagine we might have 100 or so joining us. So again, all the info's on the website. We hope if people are interested, they can join us and let their Lutheran single friends know that we're doing this as well, if it's something they want to jump on board and cruise along with us. Folks, you'll find a link to this Lutheran Singles Cruise August 1st through the 5th at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. I will not be singing karaoke. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller is pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. He posts theology on the YouTube channel Wolfmiller One, and he's author of several books, including His American Christianity Failed. Brian, thank you again. Thank you, Todd.
Next week on Issues Etc., we'll talk to Dr. Jordan Cooper about five proofs that Christ's true body and blood are present in the sacraments. We'll discuss empathy, feminism, and the church with Dr. Joseph Rigney. And we'll get an update from Tom Halverson on a lawsuit between Concordia University, Texas and the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. I'm Todd Wilkin. Go to church on Sunday. Thanks for listening to Issues Etc. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. Metro East Lutheran High School in Edwardsville, Illinois, invites you to an open house from 1 to 3 on Sunday afternoon, February 4th. Take a tour, visit with faculty and administration, and find out more about financial assistance and scholarships. For more information, visit the Facebook page for Metro East Lutheran High School or call 618-656-0043. Open house at Metro East Lutheran High School, Edwardsville, Illinois, Sunday afternoon, February 4th. Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Collinsville, Illinois, is happy to support the Christ-centered, cross-focused ministry of Issues Etc. Join us for worship, Bible classes, youth ministry, and other opportunities to grow in Christ. We have a Christian day school for children in preschool to eighth grade. We are located at 1300 Beltline Road. Call us at 618-344-3151 or visit www.goodshepherdcollinsville.org.